Well, good morning. It's good to see your smiling faces. Sounds like we're a little hot on the mic up here today. Praise God. Is that better? All right. Hallelujah. Don't laugh if I break this. You got to come up here and preach. This is all my notes. <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise God. Well, we're going to go ahead and continue on on this series we've been going through of who we are as a church. And this morning, the, the next one that I want to talk about is basically our mission statement, if you will, as a church, and, and that is to evangelize, to equip, and to empower. So here's the idea. Our, our first purpose as a church is to evangelize. We want to share the gospel with those who have not heard it. We want to tell them about the love of Jesus, and we want them to receive that free gift of salvation. But we don't want to stop there. Unfortunately, the church is actually pretty good at making converts, but we're kind of terrible at making disciples. And that's the next part of it, is, is we don't want to just get people saved. Uh, we also want to prepare them and to teach them. And that's where the empower part, uh, I'm sorry, the equip part comes in. And I'll be talking about the equip portion of our mission statement next week. And then finally, we also don't even want to stop there. We want to get people saved. We want to equip them in the Word and 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 uh, teach them and make good disciples out of them, but we also want to empower them to step out into their ministry. So that's the idea, is that all of us have a calling uh, and a plan and a purpose that God has placed on our life, and we want to be able to get people saved, to train them, and then help them step out into that calling, that purpose that God has for their life. And, and that'll be um, in two weeks from now, Joseph will be ministering on that one. But that is uh, kind of our mission statement as a church, is to evangelize, equip, and empower. So today, let's talk about the evangelization part. So the question is, we have to ask ourselves, church, is what are we actually here for? Now, many people come to church because they think it's a, a time of entertainment, and, and uh, you know, we have the, the worship team up there, and, and, and they're amazing. I mean, just the guy on the piano is whew, something else, and uh, the drummer, whoo! But uh, some people come to be entertained. Some people come for the good music. I actually read a stat once that, that most people choose which church they go to based on, the, on the, the music that's playing there, which is an interesting reason for me to choose a church. But uh, uh, it is what it is, I suppose. You know, we, we get them how we'll take them, and we try to get them teached and trained and, 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 and uh, you know, a little bit more mature as they go. But uh, the reality is, is, I don't even know where I was going with that. Now, you guys have got me all confused. Why do we come to church? Some people, <laughs> praise God, that's, that's, why we keep, that's why we keep them around. So, <laughs> so why, why do we come? Some people come to be entertained. Some people come um, to get something out of it, right? We go to this, we go to this really big church because they have all these services. They've got a great youth group, and they've got all these great programs. But we forget the real purpose of what the church is here for. And the church is, is made, the kingdom of God has been growing, the church has been growing just to reach other people and to continue growing the church. The whole purpose of the church is to reach the lost and bring people into the kingdom of heaven. And that is our purpose here. Our purpose is no different than any other church's purpose. And that is our vision here as a church as well. You know, one of the, the hardest parts for me as a pastor is this, as things are growing much slower than I expected them to when we planted this church, they told me that it would take time. They told me to, to, to be patient and to endure. And, but I just knew I was going to be different. We were going to open the doors, and I was going to have to turn people away. We were probably going to have to, to sell tickets or something. It was going to be so packed, and, and uh, it didn't quite turn out like that for me. And the funny thing is, is apparently that's, 
That's, that's not an uncommon thing. All of us that plant a church think that we're going to be different. But the truth is, is people have been staying away by the thousands. And, uh, but we're going we're gonna to keep being here for them and keep inviting them in because our goal is to grow to reach more people. And it can be disheartening when it's not growing as fast as we think it, it, as it should. Um, the, the, it's not going the way we want, but that doesn't change what we're here for. And we're, we're glad that as we continue to grow, as we continue to have more people and more resources, we'll be able to do more in the community. But Living Hope Family Church in Marana is here for a purpose, and that is to win the city of Marana to Jesus. And that's because we have the life of Christ in us. If you're a born-again believer, you have the life of Christ living inside of you. You have his spirit living inside of you, and he loves people. Jesus loved people, and his life inside of us causes us to love people. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We should be imitating what Christ did in his life. Philippians 2, 3 through 8 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that mind, this looking to others is more important than yourself. That is actually yours in Christ Jesus. You say, but I'm, I'm not like that, Pastor Wayne. If you're born again, you are like that. You just need to get in, in touch with who you really are. Because have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the, the attitude, the mind that we should have is that everybody out there is more important than ourselves. I mean, I look and watch the news and I'm always disheartened and, and the stuff that's going on, it's crazy. Think how much of a better place this world would be if everybody would just think of other people as more important than themselves. We've been teaching our kids, we've been teaching through the media and our schools and, you know, look out for number one. You know, you got to look out for yourself. Make, make sure that you're taken care of. But that is one of the worst attitudes that you can have, and I'm heartbroken when I hear that. Because we need to think of other people as more important than ourselves. And the truth is, is that everything that we do in this church is with that goal in mind. Even if you don't see it, even if you don't feel like things are happening behind the scenes, everything that we do is with the goal in mind is to reach people for Jesus through this church. And if we ever find ourselves at a point where we just have great programs, but they're not, they don't fit into this roadmap, we have to reevaluate them. We don't do stuff just for stuff's sake. We do it with the one goal is to reach people for Jesus. Outreaches are to reach those who have not been reached. Even stuff that we've done in the past, like volunteering at the food bank, when we did the, the Easter outreach over here, when we did the Halloween stuff, everything that we do is with the goal of of hopefully having the opportunity to minister and share Jesus with somebody. Hopefully with having the goal that maybe they'll come check this church out and see what it's all about so we can share Jesus with them. The purpose of everything that we do is to share Jesus. Because we want to express our love with the community, developing a relationship with the community, all the while showing them Christ's love through the things that we do that we could be his hand and feet. And we're going to continue on doing additional things. One of the things we're going to be doing again, we've been in our leadership meetings talking about, is getting more involved with the, the food bank again. We also want to go ahead and get more involved with one of the local schools and start supporting them. And that's going to, to take effort. I, I just want to give you guys a heads up, but begin praying about it and see how God can, can use you to help. Because the thing about doing all these great things is they're important, but they take resources. They take people. They take man hours. They take finances. 
But in order to be effective, we need to be able to put them as more important than ourselves. That means that maybe we put away the Starbucks for a week and put that money and invest it into a kid's uh, lunch or backpack or whatever we can do. We'll be bringing more details on that, but the idea is, is that we want to make an impact in this community and share the love of Christ with them. So the first scripture we're going to look at today is Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This isn't in my notes, but you ever notice how much people uh, have problems with this stuff? They get saved and they, they, they want the good stuff. They're, they're, they're willing to, to accept salvation, but they're not willing to actually live what that, what that means and let them be changed. They, we're supposed to teach people to observe all that I've commanded you, but nowadays when you try to teach that stuff, people think you're just being judgmental. That's not what I'm preaching about today. What I am preaching about, though, is Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the Great Commission. Unfortunately, in, in, in uh, uh, many Christian circles, this has kind of become the great omission. Nobody's ever, we're just, everyone just likes to come to church, sit on their blessed assurance, fill a seat, warm a chair. And, uh, but the truth is, is, we're supposed to be speaking to other people. We're supposed to be be reaching out. And the great thing is, is that we don't do it under our own power because it would be a scary thing to go out into this world and try to stand up for, for what is right and for stand up for, for Jesus and to share his love if we had to do it on our own. But Jesus says, I have given, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now you go. What that means is Jesus has given us his authority. He has delegated his authority to us. And we recognize that Jesus gets his authority from God. Therefore, if Jesus delegates his authority from us, which was delegated to him from God, that means that there is no other person or power or principle on this earth that has greater authority than us. Take a moment for that to sit in. You, you don't understand or realize how much power you actually have through Jesus Christ, what he's given you, and, and it's for the sole purpose of making disciples of all nations. And you wonder, well, what is this power you're talking about? But what he's given us is the power to teach, the power to heal, to cast out demons, to forgive sins. That's what Jesus did on this earth as he taught, he healed, he casted out demons, and he forgave sins. And I recognize that we don't have the power to forgive sins, but we do have the power to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. It's already happened in his son, in Jesus Christ. And we're not called to make converts, but we're called to make disciples. And we're going to get into that more next week when we talk about the equipping and the empowering. But we're not supposed to just get saved. and It's not just supposed to be a quick emotional experience, but we get saved so that we can serve our Heavenly Father. Because being a disciple is kind of like being an apprentice. I always like having Joseph in the congregation because he's part of the, the, the Carpenters Union. They actually still have apprentices. We don't see that very often, but the whole idea of an apprentice is you come up underneath somebody else, you work underneath them, and you, you learn, and you train, and you get built up so you become stronger, so then you can graduate to journeyman, and you can graduate to full-blown carpenter, and the great thing is, is then you get to do it again. You get to do it for somebody else. That's the idea of being a disciple, is to walk alongside somebody, to learn from them, to grow from them, and eventually reach a point of maturity where you can do the same for somebody else. Amen? I'm going to have to skip some stuff. We're never going to get it all in here. 
praise God. Romans 3, 10 through 18 says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. See, the first thing that we have to understand when we begin to share the gospel, you need to be convinced that there's a need for Jesus. If you're not convinced that there's actually a need for Jesus, how are you going to be motivated to go out and share it with somebody else? I think that's the problem we see a lot in, today's, in, in people today is, is, is they don't want to push their religion on somebody else. Anybody ever heard somebody say that? I don't want to push my religion on somebody else. I don't want to, 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 uh, uh, to, to, be, to, to intrude on their life. And that always, that always scares me to death because I want to ask them, do you really believe what you say you believe? Do you really believe that if they don't have Jesus, if they don't have a brand new life inside of them, if they don't receive salvation, that they are going to hell? Because if you believe that, what kind of a jerk do you got to be to not share that with somebody? If you believe that they're going to hell, if they don't have Jesus, what kind of a person do you have to be to not want to share that with them? By not sharing, you're basically telling them to go to hell. There is a need. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. In case you're curious, that means nobody. Zilch, not a nobody. Not one person is righteous on their own. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths and ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is Paul talking to the Roman church, and he just began to, to spit out, uh, quoting scriptures from so many places in the Old Testament, the Psalms in the Old Testament. You see, Paul realized that there was a need for Jesus. And he's speaking to the Roman church, and he says, look, I'm reading to you right from your scriptures. There was a need for this. There were, people need Jesus. There's none righteous without him. And the reality is, is that most people realize that they need something. If you look back into your life, before you were saved, I know I look back into mine, and I was always searching for something. I was always yearning for something, and I always began to look for it in the, the most terrible of places. I said, that's what most people do. They're yearning for something. They're looking to fill that hole, and they look for it in sex. They look for it in drugs. They look for it in cars. They look for it in their job. They look for it in all of these different things, thinking that if I just find this thing, then I'll finally be fulfilled. I'll finally be whole, and there'll be nothing missing. But the reality is, is that those things just fill temporarily, and the next thing you know, you have that hole again. You know, people say, no, I'm not looking for something. Then why do they live their lives the way that they do, always looking for something? Because they can't find contentment with what they have. And the reality is, is that we're all sinners. We're all born broken. We're all born with a giant hole inside of us. And that's why these things were written in the Old Testament is because this is the reality of who we are without Jesus. And we're looking for something that can fill that hole. We're always looking for something that we can finally be content and have joy. And Jesus is the only one that can fulfill that hole. You know, Paul was quoting the Old Testament so many times because there was no Jew that could refute what he was saying when he began to show from the Scriptures over and over and over that we need God, we need Jesus. We need to be born again and made brand new. An amazing thing about all this is, while all this is true, God still loves us. God doesn't love us for the things that we've done. 
God doesn't not love us for the things that we've done. And I thank God for that because I've done plenty of unlovely things in my life. I look back and even I'm shocked at the forgiveness that, that Jesus has shown to me because of the, I've done some dumb stuff. But I thank God that he doesn't love me for the things I've done or haven't done, but he loves me in spite of the things that I've done. The truth is, is that people need peace. People need restoration. And as Christians, our hearts should hurt. Our hate for those people. The love of Christ inside of us should compel us to reach out to those who are walking around hurting. Those who are walking around with that hole that we used to have. Amen? There is a need for Jesus. And that's the first part of understanding that we need to evangelize is that there is a need. But the best part is that there's a solution as well. There isn't just a need, there is a solution. John 3, 16 through 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is an amazing thing, because right here we find that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's no one good, not even one. But then it says, whoever believes in him should not perish and have eternal life. It has nothing to do with the person, but other than they're willing to trust Jesus for this salvation. And he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Isn't that amazing? God had every reason and every right to condemn the world because it was a big giant mess. But instead he sent his Son, not to condemn them, but instead to, to bring them out of that pit that they were in. To put them back on that solid ground to restore them to the position that man had in Adam, which was no past, no history, but made perfect and brand new and holy before his God. This means that there is hope. You know, if, if we looked out under this world and we saw all the brokenness and all the mess, if you just spent half an hour watching the news, that's enough to break your heart with the stuff that's going on. Especially with some of the stuff that people are doing, and they're convinced that they're right. Like, there is no hope. This world looks broken. It, looks, it would be such an incredibly sad world if there was no hope, if there was no way out. But there is a solution in Jesus Christ. Jesus can give them that fulfillment that they're looking for in all the wrong places, in the drugs, the sex, their job, the government. Man, you've got to be disillusioned to look for fulfillment in your government, to look for satisfaction in your government. It's like the, the scariest phrase you ever heard is, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. But there is a promise of health. There is a promise of wellness. There's a promise of relationships being restored. There's a promise of provision in Jesus Christ. And this is because of the unimaginable love that, that God has for us. In John 15, 13, it says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friend. God got up off the throne, came to earth as a man, and gave his life for you and I. That's how much he loved you, is he was willing to give up everything for you. And the reality is, is that we have that treasure now. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, it says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. That's, that's a Christian speak for your body, inside of you. You have this power, you have this, this treasure. And we can share that with others. 
the treasure that we have is so incredibly valuable. And I always find it interesting is that we're always scared to share this with people. If we won the lottery, we'd tell everybody we know. If you're smart, you probably shouldn't. But <laughs> we would. Because we're excited. We, you know, we, we got this amazing, this amazing treasure. But we wouldn't go buried in the backyard and not tell anybody. We would tell people. We'd be excited. Why aren't we like that with the treasure that we have inside of us? Because it's more infinitely valuable than, than money on earth. This is eternal richness that we have in Jesus Christ. And the greatest part of this treasure is that it never runs out. If you won the lottery and you kept giving it away, you would eventually run out. People do it all the time. They go bankrupt after that. It's a staggering statistic. And uh, for some reason, I'm thinking 60% of all, all people in the lottery go bankrupt. But I could just be making that up. I'm not sure. But that's what's coming to my mind. I've, I've read it somewhere before. It's a staggering number of people that win the lottery go bankrupt great thing about the treasure that we have is that we never run run out every time i read that we have a, a treasure in this jar of clay i'm reminded of, of of when the the widow was pouring out the oil and they said bring all the vessels and as long as empty vessels kept coming it kept pouring and it never ran out that's what i i'm always reminded of when i think of the treasure we have in this earthen vessel is that it's never going to run out we can keep pouring it and sharing with others we have a gift inside of us that that we can share with the world and the truth is is that that it is our, as our duty, it's our responsibility to share with the world. It's the only thing that Jesus didn't take care of, and that's the sharing of the gospel. He left that to us. And the truth is, is we got the easy part. We just got to tell people. The other thing that I think sometimes that we're concerned about is that if we're sharing the gospel, we're wondering what people are going to think or we're or we're wondering if people are, you know, people particularly nowadays, they look at us and think they were crazy. We believe in fairy tales. This is what the Word of God says in 2 Corinthians 17. It says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God, God's Word, but as men of sincerity, as shinned by God, and the sight of God we speak in Christ. What that's saying is that the message that we're sharing is not inferior. It's not, we're not snake oil salesmen trying to people into to, to getting out of them to share life with them and what we have to offer is not inferior and it's not invaluable and it's definitely not anything to be ashamed of we are called to be cities on a hill you know one of the things that i've i've noticed more recently if you follow me on facebook or instagram you've been seeing i've been putting pictures up as i've been taking pictures of the milky way and it's really amazing what you can see with a camera that you can't see as well with your with your eyes but one of the things is that whenever there's a big city, one of the things you have to contend with when you're shooting a dark sky like that is, is what they call light pollution. We hear a lot in Tucson because it's hit peak, and that's why they're always pushing back about turning on more street lights. It's why we don't have, we have this little tiny downtown, and we don't have big sky rises because it would make it impossible for them to do their work at the observatory. But one of the things that I, that I notice is that when I take pictures, there's this glow from the city, you can see it from Tucson. We were just in Patagonia, and I'm like, it's going to be brilliant. It's so dark. And I pointed my camera towards the south sky. Matter of fact, let me see if I can pull it up. I'll have to, it won't be up there, but uh, I want to show you guys something. So this right now, it's 3 a.m. You see that glow right across the mountain right there? You guys see the glow across the mountain as I'm shooting the Milky Way? That's the light from Nogales. It's called light pollution. It, it comes up. Nogales is on the other side of that mountain, and that glow on the bottom that's messing up my shot of the Milky Way is Nogales. 
I have some that I took up on top of uh, uh, Mount Lemon, and you see the same thing, this big white glow on the bottom, and it's Tucson messing it up. But you know what? Those aren't even cities on a hill, and they're lighting up for miles around. We should be like cities on a hill, on top, you can see from here, with our light shining so brightly that people could see us. They could see that light. They could see that glow, and they would be want to drone in. We're supposed to be noticed so that God can be glorified. Amen? Matthew 25, 17 says, And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. One of the things we have to recognize, too, is that Jesus loved people. And not people, not just religious folks, not just the people that were clean and nice and had nice cars and nice clothes. Jesus loved everybody, even those who were sick, downtrodden, those who were hurting, those who were broken. That's actually who he loved the most because the problem with all the religious folk is they already, they already knew everything. It's like trying to talk to your children when they know everything. And that, that, I think that's what Jesus dealt with when he was talking to the religious folk. They already knew everything. Couldn't be, but the, the people that are broken and that are hurting, they needed him. And it wasn't just a subset of people. It was everybody. They didn't have to, there was no requirements. There wasn't an application that they had to fill out. He loved them. You think of, of you can think of sickness as a, a disease and forgiveness as a cure and Jesus as the physician. And there's only three types of people that Jesus can help. There's only three types of people that, that can't or won't receive him. And that's those who don't know or know of him. It's impossible for them to receive him if they don't know. Those who know of him but refuse to trust him. And those who won't admit that they need him. It's the only three types of people that can't be reached. And really those bottom two, those who know him but refuse to trust him and those who won't admit that they need him, those are very difficult for us to reach. And the truth is, is they're not our responsibility. They have to make a decision on their own. But those who don't know or know of him certainly are our responsibility. It is our responsibility that the whole world would know. And for the others, we just love them and we share when we have opportunity and we take every opportunity. We walk through every open door, but we should be sharing with them and pray that the Holy Spirit would touch their heart. But ultimately, it is a decision that they will have to make. And the truth is, is that, that everybody that I share the gospel with, if they don't receive it, they, they, they can't use the excuse, but Pastor Wayne didn't press hard enough because they have to make a decision. But I do think that we're going to answer for those who we didn't take the opportunity. The truth is, is that one day we will all stand before Jesus. We'll lay our crowns at his feet, and it says we will give an account. And... And I believe that sin is dealt with. You're not going to give an account of your sin. It is completely paid for. If we had to give an account for it, then why did Jesus die for it? But I do believe you will give an account for what you've done with what he's given you. Did you share? Did you tell everybody? Or did you bury that treasure in a jar in your backyard? In Matthew 9.36, it says that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. 
who are continuing to talk about how Jesus loves people. And I think that sheep without a, a shepherd is such a provocative description because it describes people who want to look to something, who want to be led, but have no one to lead them. They're lost. I haven't decided if, if God referring to people as sheep in the Bible is an insult or if it's just a, a reality, but the truth is, is that sheep without a shepherd, sheep without something to lead them, they just wander around aimlessly, almost with no purpose. And the truth is, is that I, I wonder, is it, is it an insult or just an observation? <laughs> They were referred as a sheep. But sheep are unable to take care of themselves. They rely on the shelter for everything, for food, shelter, protection. They're defenseless and are unable to take care of themselves. They operate with a herd mentality. Anybody ever seen people do that? They'll follow anyone or anything that seems to have a little confidence. Just have a smidgen of confidence. They'll, they'll follow it anywhere, even if it's through their doing. You guys ever heard of the, uh, I think they call it the, the Judas goat? You guys ever heard of the Judas goat? It's actually a term for, so basically when they are, are sending sheep to the slaughter, they have to send them down this path and up inside to the truck to take them to the slaughterhouse. And the sheep are nervous, and they won't go anywhere without a leader. So what they've done is they've taken a goat, and they've trained this goat to stand at the edge of the, the entryway to the truck, and he kind of looks back, and he stands there, and then takes a few more steps, and then, Stand and looks back, and basically what happens is the sheep see this goat, and they see that it has confidence it's going that way, so they begin to follow the goat. So the goat comes up, and right at the last moment, they take the goat out of the chute, and the sheep just continue on into the back of the truck to be sent to the slaughterhouse. Sheep will follow anything that has a little bit of confidence, and we see that in our world today. There's uh, plenty of goats in office, I think. But they need, they're looking for a shepherd, and, and Jesus was heartbroken that they had no one to lead them. Luke 4, 16 through 21 says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and was his custom. And he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and having recovered, uh, and recovering of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You know, that's the whole reason Jesus came was to, to be this light for people, to save people, to bring them basically kind of like a reset on their life, if you will. This is actually, the, the Jewish rabbis have always attributed the scripture that, that Jesus was reading to the Messiah. And Jesus very boldly stood up in front of them and said, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing right now. He's basically saying, I am he. And the reference of the year of Jubilee was actually described in Leviticus 25. And then every seventh year was the sabbatical year for the nation. And this is when the land was allowed to rest. Basically. This, uh, this year of Jubilee, the sabbatical year was when, or sorry, the, the sabbatical year was every seven years, and basically they would, they would plow, they would work the fields, but they, but they would collect enough on the last year to, to, to last them another year so they could let the ground rest. Because if you keep uh, over, over planting the land, you'll eventually steal all the resources and nothing will grow to become completely barren. So to let the land rest. Well, then every seven of those sabbatical years, they would have the year of Jubilee. 
And the main purpose of this special year was to balance the economic system. Slaves were set free and returned to their families. Property that was sold reverted to the original owners. All debts were canceled, and the land lay fallow as man and, and beast rested and rejoiced in the Lord. Basically, it was like a reset on the land, a reset on people. Everything was back to the way it was. was not referring to this in an economic sense that he was the fulfillment of it, but in a spiritual sense. It was kind of like a reset on our spiritual lives. We were, when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are reset to the position that Adam held when he was in the garden, before there was sin, before there was death. He was an adult, grown man with no baggage, no history, nothing to pull him down. And he stood before his Lord, blameless. That's what Jesus did for us. It's like a reset for our spiritual life. And then we also get to proclaim this good news as well. Did you know the gospel is supposed to be good news? That's what gospel means. It's good news. It's not fear-based. We shouldn't be pointing fingers at people and telling them that they're awful and they're worthless and they're sinners and they're going to hell because that doesn't sound like good news to me. There is some truth to that. But that's not, the good news is, is not pointing out their failures, but it's pointing out Christ's success for them. That's the good news. Telling people that there's something more, that God loves them. We should be telling people that they're free and forgiven and not condemned and going to hell. And this was on this earth. Luke 19.10 said, The Son of, Man, Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Romans 10.11-13, it says, For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him shall not be put to shame. That's good news. Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's one of the things we have to realize is that we can't pick and choose either. We can't pick the best well-dressed people, the people that have the most money. We, we, we need to share with everyone because everyone is deserving of God's love. Rather, let me rephrase that. They're not deserving, but everyone has God's love, whether they deserve it or not. And if God is not going to pick and choose, if God is not going to draw lines in the sand, who do we think that we are that we might do the same? The truth is that there is no distinction between Jew, Greek, rich, poor. doesn't matter what the color of your skin is, your nationality. doesn't matter where you live, what kind of job you have. None of that matters. God loves you more than you can ever imagine. And His love is, is, is for them. But the thing is, is, we can't just understand that. Something else has to happen. And if you continue on in verse 14, it says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? It says that it's for everybody, but how will they call on him on whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him and whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Jesus has a heart for all who are lost, but it is our job to tell them about him. That missing piece, Jesus died and gave everything for us. So the, the responsibility that we have is to minister to others, to share this truth with them. Because the reality is, is, how can they call on him? How can they respond if they don't know? How will they know if somebody doesn't tell them? And this is our responsibility, church. This is the whole point of, of the evangelized portion of our mission statement. This is our responsibility is to share Jesus with others. It's our responsibility to tear down strongholds and false notions of who Jesus and God are. And it's to introduce people to a God who loves them 
and let them know that he sent his son to die on the cross for them to make them whole, to make them perfect, to make them holy, to make them brand new. Hearing the gospel so that they can call on the name of Jesus. This is a story about how Billy Graham came to know the Lord that I've always found interesting and how kind of how the path that, that met to him knowing him and the impact of just sharing with one child he made. It says, winning a child of Christ is, of course, infinitely valuable in itself, but someone sometimes we are winning even more, as the following story shows. Edward Kimball, a shoe shop assistant and a Sunday school teacher in Chicago, loved boys, and he spent hours of his free time visiting young street urchins in Chicago's inner city, inner city trying to win them for Christ. And through him, a young boy named D.L. Moody got saved in 1858. And Moody grew up to be a preacher. In 1879, Moody won to the Lord a young man by the name of F.B. Meyer, who also grew up to be a preacher. And Meyer won a young man by the name of J.W. Chapman to Christ. And Chapman, in turn, grew up to be a preacher and brought the message of Christ to a baseball player named Billy Sunday. As an athlete, Evangelist Sunday held a revival in Charlotte, North Carolina, that was so successful that another evangelist by the name of Mordecai Ham was invited to Charlotte to preach. And it was while Ham was preaching that a, teacher, that a teenager named Billy Graham gave his life to Jesus. And it all started with winning that child to Jesus so many years ago. The legacy that Billy Graham has, you know, that, that line doesn't start there. He reached so many people to Christ before he passed. So many people he's reached. How long will that legacy extend out? All because somebody years and years ago decided to tell a child about Jesus. You never know the impact that you're going to have on the kingdom of God just by sharing his love. And it's not terribly difficult to just share that Jesus was the Son of God, that he loved them, that he gave his life for them, that he was crucified and died for their sins, and that he was raised again so that they would have newness of life. And that that sacrifice was enough. And you don't have to be a pastor to preach the good news. If it was only pastors that could share the gospel, it would be very slow going indeed. But the truth is, it's all of our responsibility to share the gospel, not just pastors. You can preach to your friends and to your neighbor. And if you're not sure what to say, invite them to church. That's a start. Get them to come, get them to so they would have that opportunity. And you can make a difference in somebody's life. I'm so thankful that somebody took the time to invite me and, and to, to be persistent with me. Because it took me a little while before I finally said yes. A long while, if I'm being honest. But they never gave up. And as a result, I'm here today. And I, I think that we will all have those stories to tell one day. When you share with people, I think one day in heaven we're going to be able to meet people that we never even knew we had an influence on. And they're going to say, you remember me, but this happened. You spoke to me. You impressed this on me. And as a result, it changed my life forever, the trajectory of my life forever. And I'm here because of you. The reality is, is that it is our responsibility to share with others. And an important part of the culture of this help them. Even if you don't know everything, you don't have to, to be a theologian. You don't have to have a doctorate in theology to share the gospel. And you can say, no, if you see Jesus, your life is going to change. You'll be made brand new. I can ask you, well, how do you know? And you can just say, I was there. You know what happened in your life. Share that with others. 
You know, your testimony will never save anybody, but it will open the door for you to share Jesus with them. Tell people how God has touched your life and made a difference. And see, you can't make an impact on earth with the gospel.